Durban just can't do anything. We've, <laughs> we're like, are unable to do any business. Oh, well, Wednesday's public holiday, so we'll only do it next week. Like, what do we do on Monday, Tuesday, Thursday? Obviously not on Friday. No one works on Friday. But um, I am, I'm discovering that Wednesday is crucial. To, we must be such incredibly busy people on Wednesdays. Durbanites must just be unbelievable on Wednesdays to get everything done. Um, yeah, if you share my frustration, I'm sorry to hear that. But welcome back if you've been away. I've just had the privilege of a bit of leave. Uh, we went and spent a week and a half with no cell phone signal in the mountains, uh, which is why I was probably rude to you if you were trying to get hold of me. What a wonderful, uh, refreshing time. Feeling very uh, fortunate to have had that. And we are probably needed the rest uh, because we're about to talk about a tricky topic. We... We're going to talk about church and state. And many of you might just immediately go, well, church and state are supposed to be separate. Let's just double check. Let's look at the Bible and see how the church is called to engage with the state. And particularly at a time like this, uh, when we've got quite a big event just on the horizon that I'm sure many of you are aware of and thinking about. Um, And I'm just going to apologize up front. If you're not a Christian, as always, you're so welcome here. I'm not going to really pay much attention to you this morning. So you've picked a good Sunday to sort of just look in at what the church believes about politics. Uh, I I don't know how helpful this message will be for you. I hope it is interesting. Uh, But I'm going to just take the liberty of speaking to Christians this morning only uh, as we try to wade into what does the Bible really say about politics and what is God calling us to right now uh, as his church in this nation. Um, And I must admit, I I always used to assume that politics was just totally separate from church, uh, that Christians should just not pay much attention really, that we're called to just serve God and love people um, and honor the emperor, and uh, and that this idea of church is getting really partisan and supporting some political parties and not others, like many of the churches in the States, seem to have fallen into the trap of doing that. It's just looked unhelpful, right? You look at that and go, oh, crumbs. Thank goodness we're not like that. That just seems like such an obvious mistake. Um, you know, be about Jesus and about republicanism or Democrats or whatever. It's like, no, that just smacks of um, something partisan. So the church is clearly not called to do that. Um, and some of that thinking comes out of a really amazing verse that we're just going to start with and have as the underpinning before we then get into what God might actually be calling you to do. Quite excitingly, over the next few days. See, I believe by the end of this message, if you're a Jesus follower, your whole perspective on the next few days and weeks should have changed from one of maybe sort of humanistic optimism, if you're just wired that way, uh, maybe pessimism, maybe abject terror, maybe you've been you know, polishing your uh, maroon-colored passport if you're lucky enough to have one of those. Well, we're not going to talk, we're not going to end up in that state of mind at all by the end of this. We're going to start to see, oh wow, there's a cool faith adventure ahead for us, and not just a private one, but God is going to use his church powerfully as he so often has, to do something awesome on the national scale. So I'm trusting that by the end of this, you have a a better and bigger image of what we're called to do. But the beginning place, the sort of underpinning for any conversation about church and politics has to be in Romans 13. And I'm going to read a decent chunk of this, and then I'm going to read an even huger chunk out of Isaiah. Uh, And so I really wasn't kidding when I said that this is a sermon for Christians. But just listen to what Paul has to say. Paul writing to a church under Nero, One of the worst Roman emperors ever. Evil dude. Crazy, nasty piece of work. This is what Paul has to say. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what's right, and you'll be commended. 
for the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They're God's servants, agents of wrath, to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it's necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. Just five words there that we're going to dig into because Paul seems to say there's some other conscience kind of religious reason for doing this, not just pragmatic avoiding prison. And then he um, goes where you're all hope, you know, you probably would prefer that I'd just cut the passage here. This is also why you pay your taxes. Um, For the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. Let no debt remain outstanding. Accept the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. That's chunky, isn't it? That's massive. Paul is saying that there's no such thing as a fake, illegitimate authority. God has put them all in place. And you might be going, hmm, I can think of one or two. Interesting that God is not worried about his reputation here. God is not nervous to remain politically correct and try and distance himself from some dodgy leaders. He's saying even the worst ones, even the evil ones. I created the scenario in which they could rise to power. Now, God often ends up ending their periods of authority, but he is absolutely claiming responsibility for the institution of government and the fact that those who are in government are there doing a kind of nasty, legal, punishing edge um, that God wants to be in human society for the sake of peace and law and order. Crumbs. What about if they're nasty? What if they're not particularly well-behaved? What if they're not really obeying law and order? Well, we'll get into that. But as I mentioned, Nero was not a shining light. Nero didn't believe in God, didn't care about God, didn't resemble God in any way. And yet God is saying, I put him there. I gave him the sword for a reason. There's no accidents about this. If you want to have a good time, just obey the rules. Oh, but the rules are stupid. Oh, the rules are draconian. Oh, they're unfair. Oh, they're oversteep. Well, obey the rules and you'll be fine. I put them there. And in fact, if you owe him respect, give him respect. If you owe him honor, give him honor. If you owe him taxes, well, you know what to do. And this whole thing hinges on one word. We'll go back to verse 5. Therefore, it's necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. I'm not sure if you know that every Christian, at some point as you mature, is going to smash into this concept called submission. And you will simply not grow further in God until you've got your head around the idea of submission. Submission is dreadful. It's not comfortable. No one likes submission. And uh, submission has certainly been given some quite bad definitions at times. Uh, And in the context of marriage, it's been used by all sorts of ridiculous um, patriarchs to turn it into, like, subjugation and nastiness. It doesn't seem to be possible that that's the case, because if you are going to talk about marriage, and the main place where submission is used in regards to marriage is in Ephesians 5, which starts with the line, submit to one another. So there simply can't be some kind of patriarchal, anti-feminist thing. In fact, submit to one another in Ephesians 5, in that context, was about the most feminist thing Paul could write. But even if it doesn't mean that one's the master and one's the slave, and one gets absolute blind obedience, and the other one is just silent and doesn't get to question anything, there's still something beautiful, something glorious that God calls submission, that every Christian is going to have to grow through at some point. I wonder if you've had that moment yet. I think maybe some of you have, where there's some boss that's just not doing a great job, some church leader who you can just see you probably do a better job than them, some parent, some whatever. And you know the Bible's calling you to submit to them, and you've had to struggle through that moment. And the amount of maturity that's possible, the amount of growth in your faith, 
amount of joy and potency and promotion in the kingdom of God that is available for you if you're prepared to grit your teeth and struggle through what submission is. And submission, as I said, is not a enjoyable thing. When people are, when you have wonderful leaders, when you have people who are smarter and wiser and gooder than you, it's easy to submit to them, right? Um, But submission becomes interesting when God is asking you to trust him enough to respect some leadership that doesn't resemble him, that isn't maybe necessarily good for you, that might actually be quite bad for you, that might impinge on your rights or damage your bank balance or delay your promotion or whatever the case might be. And God is saying, well, do you trust me enough to keep submitting to this authority, this leadership, or do you not trust me enough that, in fact, you're going to need to try and kick and butt and be hard to lead? And I, I don't know how to dress that up nicely because it's a, it, it's a really hard moment. But I just do want to remind you that if you're hoping to grow in God for the rest of your life, there's going to be a moment where you have to figure out submission. Do I actually trust God enough to submit to some authority that I don't necessarily trust, but I trust him so much that he can work in me and work in this person? And as he works in me and works in this person, I'm going to trust that God still has my back, that he's still going to produce good things in my life, and that I don't have to be the one to grab hold of the reins and pull the levers I can and become unleadable for this person. Probably not a great note to start the sermon on, um, but I just wanted that to underpin everything we say about politics, that this is not a difficult passage to interpret. This isn't complicated, right? Paul is going, submit to authorities. God put them there. And you get to do this not just to avoid prison, but actually as a matter of conscience. It's going to grow you in your faith if you can get your head around trusting God enough to submit even to those who aren't very trustworthy or deserving of it. And not just through gritted teeth, let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. So this person who you through gritted teeth having to submit to, oh, he's such a clown, he leads our church so badly, he's an idiot, he doesn't preach well, whatever, and I'm not, but I actually not only have to submit to this person, I have to love him as well. That's the debt that God has put at your feet. And because we know that God is good and has only good things in mind for you, we have to maybe take the leap of faith that following him into this way of living might actually be better for us than the other thing that we've been doing all along. The selfish, back myself, look out for number one, Route that, that so many humans would naturally go. Could it be that God actually has a better way to live if we were to take him at his word on this submission idea? So, does that mean we just do nothing? Don't even vote. Or rock up and just doodle on the page in whatever box you happen to cover. You know, like just, hey, if I'm supposed to submit to God, if he's in control, if I'm not supposed to rock the boat, then why do anything at all? Good question. Um, Let's go to Isaiah, the huge passage of Scripture that I promised that I was going to read to you. And and we're we're dealing with this quite foundational struggle that believers have. If God is in control, if God is sovereign, why do anything? On the other hand, he does seem to have given his people a bunch of responsibility in the world. And clearly this world is broken. And before you start reading in detail, we'll go there now. But the world is broken, right? If you look at what is and assume that it is what ought to be, you will draw all kinds of terrible conclusions about God. i say that again. If you look at what is and assume that it is what ought to be, you will draw all kinds of erroneous and terrible conclusions about God. The world is broken. It's not how it's supposed to be. So as much as God is sovereign, clearly he's allowed some stuff to go awry, and now he's put his people on earth to, in partnership with him and his Holy Spirit, do some stuff to fix it. And so Christians can't just hide behind some sovereignty of God thing and shrug their shoulders and go, well, we don't do anything. 
because if that was the case, then the world would be perfect. But clearly it's not, and you're here for a reason, to do some glorious good. So this is where this submission thing becomes interesting, because now God is calling you to actually do some stuff in that spirit of love. And this prophecy of Isaiah starts under the heading of true and false worship, which I thought was interesting. Shout with the voice of a trumpet blast. Shout aloud, don't be timid. Tell my people Israel of their sins. They act so pious. They come to temple every uh, Sunday, um, or every day, actually. It was more hardcore back then. And seem delighted to learn all about me. They act like a righteous nation. So they're filling their heads with information about God. They're filling their lives with activities aimed towards God. And yet this is still sinful, according to God. They would never abandon the laws of its God. They ask me to take action on their behalf, pretending they want to be near me. So they're hiding behind the sovereignty thing, like we were saying. Well, we're asking God to work on our behalf, and we'll just go through religious church emotions and not do very much. We fasted before you, they say, on Tuesday. Why aren't you impressed? We've been really hard on ourselves, and you didn't even notice it. I'll tell you why. So this is fascinating. God is about to respond. He's about to explain why all this churchy behavior and all this information you might know about God and even a whole bunch of really pious stuff isn't cutting the mustard. I'll tell you why. It's because you are fasting to please yourselves. Even while you fast, you keep oppressing your workers. What good is fasting when you keep on fighting and quarreling? This kind of fasting will never get you anywhere with me. You humble yourselves by going through the motions of penance, bowing your heads like reeds bending in the wind. You dress in burlap, which is apparently quite itchy and uncomfortable and doesn't look good, um, and cover yourselves with ashes. Is that what you call fasting? Do you really think this will please the Lord? No, this is the kind of fasting I want. Free those who are wrongly imprisoned. Lighten the burden of those who work for you. Let the oppressed go free and remove the chains that bind people. Share your food with the hungry. Give shelter to the homeless. Give clothes to those who need them. And don't hide from relatives who need your help. That's <laughs> just brilliant. <laughs> Break open the jails. Release those wrongly imprisoned. And answer your mom's phone calls, you muppet. Is basically what God is saying here. So this is not to diminish that pious stuff about learning about God and wanting to worship Him and fasting and praying. But God is saying, if this doesn't turn into some pretty potent action that fixes what's broken in this world, if all you do is just go, oh God, please work on our behalf, it's not impressive to God. And He goes on. Then your salvation will come like the dawn and your wounds will quickly heal. Your godliness will lead you forward and the glory of the Lord will protect you from behind. Then you will call, the Lord will answer, yes, here I am. He will quickly reply, remove the heavy yoke of oppression. Interesting, this, that line, your godliness will lead you forward and then the glory of the Lord will protect you from behind. I know for me and many Christians, I sit around hoping that the glory of the Lord will lead me forward. That God will move in and just change everything on my behalf. That he will get me out of bed miraculously, flick my Bible open miraculously, cause me to have a wonderful time of devotion with him, and then lead me zombie-like into the day where I'm just smashing, healing for this person, pray that person, sort this out, walk and just do amazing stuff. Everything I put my hand to becomes beautiful, and I make lots of money, which I can give to really worthy causes. And it's like the glory of the Lord is just going to relentlessly move me forward. No, your godliness will move you forward that quite ordinary, normal set of decisions you make where you go, I just want to behave the way I know God would like me to behave. It's not particularly supernatural. It's not particularly impressive. It's just godliness. It's just good decisions. 
It's just character and willpower going, I'm going to move forward in the way that I know God wants me to move forward. And as soon as I take half a step in faith in that direction, the glory of the Lord will come from behind and protect me as I go. I know this is just one line, and you can't build a massive theology around it, but I find that a fascinating set of statements. Your godliness will lead you forward, and the glory of the Lord will protect you from behind. And yet we're wondering the whole time when God is going to lead me forward and all I do is protect me from behind, right? I'm just protecting what I've got. I'm just looking out for number one. I'm doing all the defensive stuff and hoping that God will take care of the offensive stuff. Church, could it be you're called to be offensive and trust God to be defensive on your behalf? You're called to move and make some difficult and brave decisions. Yes, in the context of submission and love for those in authority, you might be called to make some big, brave calls and feed the hungry and clothe the naked and release the captives and look after your relatives. It might be. And when you do that, when you behave in those ways, I love this final verse. We're skipping ahead to verse 12. Some of you will rebuild the deserted ruins of your cities. Then you will be known as a rebuilder of walls and a restorer of homes. Some of you in this church already do this. You rebuild broken walls where you see them. You sort out deserted cities where you see them. You fix economies when they don't work. You solve problems where you discover them. And there's a bunch of stuff that's very easy for you to do. Most of you are middle class unemployed, which means there are doors that are open to you that are just unimaginable for someone who can't produce a CV, for someone who can't get their driver's license, for someone who can't negotiate with their boss. And you have these incredible levers that you can pull. You have these incredible doors that you can open. You are so influential, actually, in your family, in your workplace, in your networks. And maybe there's some broken stuff there that you just need to start to fix. And it's not going to be some flashing light from heaven. It's going to be your godliness that leads you forward. Trust God to protect the back end. I find that really inspiring. Uh, I want to show you some photos of what some people in our church have been doing over the weekend, right? Rebuilders of walls. These are people who will be known as rebuilders of walls. That's Tolatando. Before you flick on that bus on the left, that brightly colored one, you guys bought brand new from Hyundai a year or two ago, which still just astounds me at the generosity. And so we gave them that car, but that's their place that they live, all these little kids who don't have homes or love. And Cindy... And I find Cindy fascinating because Cindy, who's the mother of the 40-odd kids that live there, um, would probably, by most of our standards, have the right to feel sorry for herself. Not a great job, no great prospects, and yet she was just so filled with the love of God. She believed that Roman's idea that the only debt she owed was to love others. But she saw these kids who had no love and just took them in and trusted God to protect her. Uh, and so now people from our church have been going there more and more under the amazing um, leadership of Taryn. And so they spent Saturday there loving on those kids. And you can flick through, Jono, um, the stuff went on on Sunday. And I'm just so proud to be part of a church that goes, well, there's a broken wall. There's something good that's going on that just needs us to add to it. Um, and so there are people in our church who are going to be going there regularly um, and working with those kids, building relationships with those kids. There are others who are more practical, who are fixing drains and sorting out sewage problems and solving leaky roofs. There's others who are a bit more business-minded, who are going to try and figure out ways to raise money reliably and create systems that work there and try and get access to more funding. And, and whatever skill they have, they're just going and taking it to Tolatondo and doing wonderful stuff. That was what happened on Saturday. And... That's the kind of church we want to be part of, right? A church that doesn't just sit back and do a bunch of churchy stuff and learn about God and boast about the fact that we've fasted for one day, which I'm sure all of you are going to observe perfectly on Tuesday, and then go, oh God, why don't you work on our behalf? But there are a group of people whose godliness leads us forward. Where we see brokenness, we move towards it. Where we see pain, we engage. That makes me really proud. 
And interestingly, church is actually a form of government. So now we're coming into what you should do on Wednesday and over the next little while. The church in the Bible, I mean, that's an English word. The word you see most often in the New Testament is a word called ecclesia. And ecclesia is a government term. Ecclesia is the same word in ancient Greek that would have been used to describe a bunch of citizens of a state who had the right to vote. And church functions like a little government. There's leadership, there's roles to play, there's work to be done, there's subgroups within larger groups. And it seems as though God has put his people in the world to fix brokenness. And he's called that group of people ecclesia, some kind of government. So this should start to be interesting to you. When it all began, before anything went wrong, in Genesis 1, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, and over every living creature that moves on the ground. How far we have fallen, we can't even herd kittens or get dogs to do our will. Imagine trying to be in charge of the birds of the sky, right? But once upon a time, you were designed to be that impressive, that you would rule this place. And God goes on in Genesis 2 to say to the man... Put him in the garden. Um, Let me just read it. I'm supposed to try to paraphrase it. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. The people of God from the very beginning were designed to rule over, be busy, and take care of this planet. That's your destiny. That's hardwired into your design. That you were supposed to be part of a community, an ecclesia, who cares for, looks after, rules over, allows to flourish all of creation. Now we have governments that have that same responsibility and do it to a greater or lesser extent, well or not well. But parallel to the authorities God has established on earth that have legal power, God has established his church on this earth to take care of it, to grow it, to tend it, to rule over it. And the church is not something that should ever, I suppose, vote in certain governments or not vote in others because we're called to submit to authorities and to respect them. But you are church the other massive agent that God has put on earth to fix what's broken, to care for the needy, to build up what's right. And so I'm going to quickly give you three ways that you might do this and that that kind of neatly ties up with the three parts of government. So one of the worrying things is that we're so politically illiterate, we don't actually know what's going on. So do you know that South Africa is not ruled by the majority? The majority does not rule in South Africa. The constitution rules in South Africa. We're a constitutional democracy. I'm not sure if you were aware of that. That means the constitution is sacrosanct, and even the majority never gets to overrule or overturn the constitution. We're a constitutional democracy. Therefore, the constitution has the highest authority. So then what does the majority get to do? The majority gets to vote in the legislature, parliament. So when you go to vote, you're deciding how many people from different parties are going to end up in parliament. And the legislature is only one-third of what the government is. The legislature passes bills, deals with questions of what should or shouldn't be done, writes things into law, but always in submission to the Constitution. The legislature also gets to vote in the president. That means that on Wednesday, you are not voting for the president. You're voting for which party gets how much say in Parliament. Parliament then votes for the president. Nothing you can do can get Cyril to be president or not be president or someone else to be president. You are not voting for the president. You're voting for numbers of seats in Parliament, the legislature. Parliament then votes for the other component of government, which is called the executive. That's the president, and then the ministers he chooses to be part of his cabinet. Interesting how much of this seems like new information to most of us, certainly to me. And the executive is in charge, so the executive is not a member of parliament. The 
President is not a member of parliament. He's accountable to parliament, all of which in submission to the constitution. The president then chooses his cabinet, chooses his ministers to run the various departments that have to do the work that legislature decides should be done. So as parliament's deciding on bills and moves and actions and missions for what government should do, the executive job is to execute that. And so you have all these different departments that work, some really well, some not so well, to achieve what Parliament is saying should be done. That's only two out of the three arms of government, all of whom are in submission to the Constitution. The third arm is the judiciary. The courts in our country, amazingly, are totally separate from Parliament and separate even from the executive. They work independently. This country is beautifully well set up. Our Constitution is incredible. None of these arms have any right to try and overthrow the Constitution. The Constitution is what everyone is in submission to. So the majority picks Parliament. Parliament picks the executive. The executive works in submission to Parliament and under the watchful eye of the judiciary. And all the while, the Constitution keeps a beady eye over the whole lot. And the Constitution has its own arms, like the public protector and people like that, who get to ask some questions and probe and check that things are being done right. I'm not standing here blindly, ignorantly, saying that everything is done right all the time. But the fact that those systems exist and then have both the national provincial and then local levels of government, the whole mechanism is designed to invite you in to go and ask some hard questions and to suggest to your representatives what they should be raising in parliament. And yet most people, Christians included, are satisfied to just moan vaguely. I'm starting to get better at noticing, okay, so when these people are building the road near my home and there's some bricks there that look like they're left over and part of me wants to steal them and part of me wants to complain about maybe wastage. No, that's, that's the municipality. That's my local government making some decisions with their budget. And can I just mention to you that your provincial governments and local governments have more money to spend than the national government. Most of the budget goes to local government where it gets to do some work at a provincial and then municipal level. Interesting, right? And you are invited in. The whole system works on transparency. You're invited to go and engage with whoever you want to engage with at any time and ask questions and be heard and be able to watch any of the meetings that people are doing. And no, they're all very boring and it's too much work and so I'd rather just complain about it. But this system is ideal for the church in a nation like this, who also sees itself as having the mandate before God to rule over, take care of, ensure that the least are being looked after, that people have an opportunity to thrive. The system is begging for a church to rise up and start to ask some good questions and pray for wisdom and engage in meaningful ways, as opposed to just ignore it all under the, either the banner of sort of submission and something spiritual, or more likely under the banner of pessimism, well, I can't make any difference anyway. Of course you can. You're called to be involved. I know we're getting close to the end. I want to just remind you of three characters in the Bible who engaged. All right, so there are these three arms of the government. There are three characters in the Bible who engaged. Esther is amazing. Esther would be a good example of what you should do to the legislature, parliament, the people who are going to raise questions, who need to be lobbied, right? Because Esther went and did some of the most badass lobbying you'll see in the Bible. And she didn't have a burning bush, bush moment. She didn't have some great, you know, the glory of the Lord will lead you forward. It was simply her godliness that led her forward. She just made a bunch of decisions. She saw that there were certain people that she had a bit of influence with, certain people she could go and ask questions of, and just go read the story of Esther. In a very natural way, she went and lobbied and lobbied and lobbied to, I suppose, what would be our parliament, and got some decisions changed, and the people of Israel went free as a result. With no supernatural prompting, she wasn't anything particularly impressive, and yet Esther was just strategic and bold enough to stand up and have a go. 
remind you of person number two, Joseph. Remember him of the Technicolor Dreamcoat? Had such a bad run. Ended up in prison unfairly, being treated wrongly. Which always reminds me of of Madiba, who in prison, I mean, it's interesting now, you look in in hindsight, and it's like, well, obviously he knew at the time when he was in prison that he was going to become the president, and that's why he was being so great in prison, and learning Afrikaans, so that he could speak to Afrikaners when he got out, and learning all sorts of good stuff about politics, and why he went on such a massive journey of being able to get to forgiveness. Well, no, he didn't know that he was going to be released from prison, but sitting there in a prison cell with no hope, he chose to act the way he would act if something wonderful was going to come out of his life. I wonder if even when you're unemployed, even when you're being passed over for promotion, if you can sit and act the way you would act if you believe that God was going to use your life in some powerful way. Joseph did that. Sitting in prison, wrongfully in prison, remained full of integrity, remained positive, and there's this moment where he eventually says, yeah, you meant all this stuff for my harm, but God meant it for my good. This incredible idea. Where Joseph then rises to be able to influence the president. And much of the church's role, I think, towards the executive, the highest tier of leadership, is to act with integrity because God always promotes what's done in secret. He always sees when you're faithful with little and then gives you much. And as you choose to act with integrity and as you choose to allow God to use you in mighty ways, I wonder how many Christians sitting in this room are called to influence with their godly wisdom, those who are in positions of power, whether politically or commercially in companies or governments. Oh, well, it couldn't be me. Oh, it couldn't be me. Well, Joseph said similar stuff. Couldn't be me. What can I really be used for? And nevertheless, God uses him in mighty ways. And then the, the final person is Moses. I mean, if you're talking about someone who's insecure, Moses takes the cake. Right? This guy was just hopeless. Oh, I could never. I could never. Oh, I stutter. Oh, I just remembered I left the washing on. Oh, you've taken care of that, God. Oh, but then I also have this other thing. Oh, no, you've taken care of that. Oh, that I can't speak. And God has to deal with about 50 million objections because Moses is just saying, oh, it couldn't possibly be me. But Moses is one of those rare cases where he sees Pharaoh's actually fully in the wrong. And people are being mistreated. And he, despite his insecurities, rises up and says, let my people go. Surely there is a possibility that God is going to use his people from time to time to stand up and say, let my people go. And any of those, whether it's lobbying towards the legislature, whether it's giving wisdom and counsel to those in power like Joseph did, or whether it is, in worst-case scenarios, being called to actually stand up and campaign on behalf of those who are being mistreated, the church gets to do all of this. You are called to rule on earth. You're called to take care of and govern this place. The people of God were designed to be used to build broken things back into order and take deserted cities and make them flourish again. And I'm going to ask Greg to come and pray um, because as you look ahead to this week, God is going to want to lead you. He actually is. Could, it, could you imagine the church voted prophetically? Instead of rocking up there and doing whatever you thought you were going to do, imagine God could actually get through to his people and his people could vote the way he wanted them to vote so that the right folks end up in parliament to be able to vote on decisions. Or what if God is calling you to start some NGO or get involved at some local level of government or start to engage with your community policing forum or whatever the case might be? That this week could be a chance for you to recalibrate with the fact that God has been using his people throughout history to complete the work of repairing this broken place, not shrugging their shoulders and yet doing it all with this spirit of submission and love, not complaining and judgment. So, Gregor, will you come in and pray for us? We we'll want to just pass. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I pray for everyone in this room right now. 
Um, I thank you that we all have gifting, we have talents, we have calling, we, and most of all, we have you, that you have stuff prepared for us. I pray that you would lead us into whatever that is, that our hands would not be idle, but that you would lead us into the thing that you have called each of us to do. Maybe that's a conversation with someone over coffee. Maybe it's giving away something of ours. Uh, maybe it's uh, praying for someone or going somewhere or starting something, whatever it is. I just pray that you speak now to everybody here about what that is. What is their thing that you them to do today moving forward. I pray for that. I just want to take a moment there. Just hear what God is saying to you. Lord, we pray for Wednesday for the voting and for the elections. We pray for peace. We pray that you will be in our country Wednesday that we will stand in the queues and that we will be happy, happy to be with other people, happy to talk to people, that we will be South Africans, that we are a people who love each other, that are joyful, and mostly we are people who love you. I pray that that would come out on Wednesday. And I pray that through all the voting that goes on with all the parties, that you would place the people you want in Parliament, no matter what party they're from, but that they would be people who love you, who worship you, who hear you, that they would be in parliament, that they would stand for you, that they would stand for the poor, that they would stand for the widows and the orphans, and that they would mostly stand for you, that they would hear your voice. I pray that's what we get in parliament. I pray, Lord, that when it gets to choosing the executive, that we get the executive we deserve, that we get the executive that you have planned for, that you have anointed, that you have called, and I pray that they would be great that that would be a good thing for the country and that we would move forward. I pray, Lord, you help each of us that we would submit. Help us to submit in our way to, to what this government is, that we would help in any way we can for things to work out well. Mostly, Lord, I pray we seek your face, that we pray for those leaders, pray for those people. Um, that your name would be great in South Africa. That people around the world would go, it is amazing. So many years later, South Africa is still okay because God is there. Because the people of God are in that country and they are hearing God and God is moving. Amen.